What we did earlier this year in the month of January is we kicked off the year looking at the big story, the full story of the Bible, we believe is the full story of the world, right? And that's the symbols up here that Amy was talking about earlier, that her kids were, were teaching people from creation. God creates all things. He makes it good. He calls humanity to partner with him in caring for creation. But the second scene of the story, there is a rebellion Instead of partnering with God to care for his creation, we rebel against him and we try to take authority and life into our own hands and it does not go well, right? And yet because God loves and cares for his creation, including humanity, he makes a promise pointing forward to one day things will be made right again. There will be a rescuer who comes and we find that in Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus shows up and he is that full, perfect union partnership between humanity and God, being fully God and fully man himself. And he lives the perfect human life that we are, we are supposed to live, but he also takes on the penalty of our rebellion, which is death. And then he conquers that death. He rises again in the power of the spirit of God. He beats death. He overcomes sin, overcomes the grave. And then he ushers in this new type of world. It's still the same earth, the same soil that we're standing on. But when scripture talks about a new world, he's ushering in the kingdom of God right here on this earth. And he's ushering in a new humanity that will live in that world. And so we're in this stage that we call the already not yet, where we still feel the effects of the rebellion, brokenness and sin and oppression and sickness are all still around us and death, right? And yet Jesus is calling us to be a people in this fifth scene that point forward to one day he will return and things will fully be made right. And in the meantime, he's given us the power of his spirit to dwell here in that tension in a way that loves and cares for creation in this partnership with God that we're always intended for. And so that's the part of the story that we live in, this fifth symbol here. And that's why we call ourselves Missio Dei, that we are engaging in this mission of God, of showing glimpses of his full restoration that will one day finally and fully come through his power, through his spirit. It's also the part of the story that we find the church in Thessalonica in, in our text this morning. And so this is actually, First Thessalonians is one of the first Christian writings that we have, documents that we have down, like from, I'm talking about from the time that Jesus stepped onto earth, right? It's, it's one of the first letters that was penned to a group of people following Jesus in this way of life. And they're, they're trying to figure out what does it look like to live in a way that glorifies God, that cares for this world, and yet does not give in to all the temptations and the brokenness that this world is entrenched in. And so this is a letter encouraging them in that. And what happened is there's this guy named Saul who heard this. He was a devout Jew. He heard this news of Jesus and it angered him like so hard to the point where he was going around. He's going, I'm shutting this down. I'm going to stop anybody who's going around talking about this Jesus guy. And he would persecute people who were following after Jesus until one day he has this encounter with Jesus himself completely changes who he is. In fact, he goes by a new name at this point, Paul. And then he goes around talking to people about Jesus. And instead of shutting it down, he's trying to open up the doors to the kingdom and saying, come follow this Jesus. He's amazing, right? And so one of the first places he goes to is the city Thessalonica. It's in Greece. It's like the capital city of Macedonia. It's a port city. It's, it's hustling. It's bustling. 
It's under the Roman Empire, but Caesar loves them because they've adopted all of Rome's customs and all of their gods. And so Paul and his friend Silas go into the city. They start telling people about Jesus. And most of the Jews are like Paul was before. Like, no, 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 we're not having this. And so they kick him out of town. They cause a riot. But a lot of the Greeks in that city believe. And so a while later, they're wondering what happened to those people who believe this story. It's hard to follow Jesus in this city because they were so angry about it. They kicked us out. We were feared for our lives. What happened to this group of people? So they send a friend named Timothy, who's a Greek. He can go safely into the city. He checks on them, gets a good report. Hey, they still love Jesus and they're still loving people. And the cities around them are hearing about it and it's making an impact. And so he sends this report back and that's where this letter comes from. Chapter one, which we went through all last week, was all this excitement and encouragement for seeing their faith, their love, and their hope. And now we're gonna get into chapter two this morning, okay? So follow along with me, First Thessalonians chapter two. We're gonna read verses one through 12. And so the letter continues. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without results. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives, God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead, we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Father, we pray that these words written thousands of years ago to your people God, that you would use them to speak to your people here today. That we would encounter you through your message to us. Your spirit would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to receive it. And that we would be transformed by you. God, that we would not hear this as a checklist of things for us to do so that we can monitor our own behavior as behavior coaches, God. But that instead, that we would see you as the one who fulfills all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter two of this letter turns from, hey, I've heard a great report. You guys are doing awesome to, all right, let me tell you something. Let me, let me just remind you why we came. So remember, they were run out of this town. They were kicked out. And now what's happening is the people, the, the, 
Jewish people who are upset about this message in Thessalonica are going around trying to repute this message that they heard about Jesus. They're going, don't listen to these guys, all right? Don't listen to them. They're, they're charlatans. They're coming in, they're trying to fool you. They're trying to get something out of you. And so this changes kind of tone. He's going, no, no, let me remind you. Let me remind you about our time together. It was good, right? Remember, we had a, a good... <laughs> Good interaction, good relationship. We built a relationship together and we shared good news to you and we never asked you for anything. And then he goes on and he talks about, this is how we cared for you, like, like a mother cares for her own child or a father teaches his children. So recently, since we've opened up our coffee shop, Bethany is getting up every day and going and opening the shop, which means I'm on dad duty. I'm taking the kids to school and I'm picking them up from school. And it's funny because I always get people going, man, how you doing with that? <laughs> I'm like, I have 11 year olds. This isn't the first time I've been a dad. You know? <laughs> man, you got, you, you're taking them to school every day. And I'm like, hey, thanks for checking on me. But like my wife's getting up at six in the morning, leaving the house so that, no, sorry, leaving the house at six in the morning. <laughs> She's getting up at 5.30. I don't want to take that away from her. Getting up at 5.30, leaving the house at 6, making sure she's getting milk for the day and opening up the shop. Like, but thanks for asking me how I'm doing, right? So I'm doing all right. It's tough being a dad for five minutes each morning. But here's the thing. I'm getting the hang of it because here's what I do. I set my alarm, and after the snooze goes off the third time, I roll out of bed, I go across the hall, I turn on the lights, I go, wake up, start getting ready. I go back to my bed and I lay down. <laughs> I set a new alarm. And then it's like, oh, it's 7.40. All right, get in the car. And we go to school. Like, I don't know what you guys are complaining about. It's super easy. So the other day, I'm laying there crushing some candy that's my wife's game, actually. I was probably reading the Bible app on my phone. <laughs> in bed, and I'm going, I should probably be a dad right now, right? And so I start to get up out of bed, and I'm like, I'm going to come out here and make sure they're all doing okay, getting breakfast and all that. And then I hear the most amazing thing ever. I hear my son, Cannon, going, hey, guys, 7.15, where are we at? <laughs> Jonas, okay. All right, you got to start moving on to brushing your teeth now. And then a little bit later, 7.20, Liam, how you doing? All right, good. Let's, let's keep it moving. And I go, he's got this. And I go right back to bed. And I was, listen, I, I know you're thinking I'm a terrible parent right now. But delegation is the key to leadership and parenthood, right? Like, that's why we have older siblings so that we can go, here you go. This is going to be good for you. It's training for them, right? Now, for Cannon, his big motivation in this and getting his younger brother, actually, Jonas is older than him by nine minutes, but getting his other brothers out the door on time is so that he makes it to school on time and he can get breakfast before they stop serving it. Because even though we feed them breakfast, or they feed themselves breakfast at home, they get free breakfast every morning at school. So he's like, let's get there, come on. But he's taking on this kind of parental role, right? And Paul's saying, remember, we, we took on this kind of parental role too, but not as your authority, not as people lording it over you, not as your parents. If you remember, Paul's like, I, he's not a very good guy. 
I don't know if you remember that. Remember, he said he was persecuting believers before, but even himself later, as he's following Jesus, he writes down, I am the chief of sinners, which is basically the equivalent of saying, I'm the captain of the team of people that suck. Right? Like, I'm terrible. But what he's saying is, but we took on this kind of older sibling role in caring for you because you were new to what it meant to follow Jesus. And it was done out of love. We loved you so much that we cared for you like a mother would nurture her own children, like a father would teach his own children. And that's what we were there doing. And so he's going to remember this, this was how we acted toward you. And our motivation was not to get anything out of you, right? It wasn't Canon trying to get you out the door in time so I can get breakfast. It was, you know, we love you. We want you to know the truth. We want you to live in the truth. And so that's the way that Paul's approaching this right now. And it's important because they're hearing the opposite message. If we go back through this, this is what the other words that they were saying. So in verse three, he says, our exhortation, it didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive, right? I just had uh, from someone's recommendation this week, I watched American Gospel. It was a good documentary. It's a documentary on what the real gospel story is. That gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus and his kingdom come to this earth. But how specifically in America, although in all kinds of parts of the world, all throughout history, but specifically in America, what has happened is there's been these, these two different types of gospels that have really made it big time, right? This, this one story that it's all about moralism. It's all about getting a behavior coach and making sure you're doing the right things so that you can please God. And then the other story has been about, hey, if you do the right things and please God, he's gonna bless you. He's gonna give you a new car. He's gonna help make sure your bills are paid and that you're not sick anymore. If you're getting sick, it's because you don't have enough faith, right? And these are lies. This type of church that has been bred in America is a lie. And what's crazy is, as I was watching that, I was reading this this week and going like, they had some of the same lies going on then too. They had this story being told of like, no, no, these people are coming in trying to deceive you. And they're going, no, we loved you. We were giving you the truth. He goes, verse two, remember he talks about, we were treated outrageously in Philippi. That was the city where they came from to get to Thessalonica. They were treated terribly there too. But he goes, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you too, in spite of great opposition. This was coming at a cost to them. It was not fun. It was not for comfort. And they weren't getting anything out of it. Why do you give something away to somebody when you don't get anything out of it? It's got to be motivated out of something deeper, right? And in this case, he's saying it's motivated by love and by truth. So he goes, this wasn't out of impurity and it wasn't out of intent to deceive. And then verse five, he says, I love this. He goes, we never used flattering speech. And he goes, as you know, Paul has said elsewhere before, like, I'm not a very good speaker. I don't talk too good, right? So he's like, we didn't use flattering speech, as you know. Like, I would fumble over my words all the time. But, he goes, but, we didn't have greedy motives. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from you. But, he says, we came with the message of God. So, I didn't come in to get something from you. 
and I didn't come in to deceive you. And that flattering speech too, it's not just like that I was talking so elegantly that you hear this amazing speaker and you go, I'm buying whatever they're selling, right? But he's also saying, no, no, I wasn't also just trying to tickle your ears and tell you whatever you wanted to hear. Now, I've done a lot of public speaking over the years. My other job previously was touring around the nation, and I spoke to well over a million students, parents, teachers in the public school system and in different small organizations and things like that. And I know, I've learned, that if you say the thing people want to hear, then you get the thing you want, which is applause, right? You get the testimonials. You get all the things saying, like, this is a great speaker so I can sell that to other people and get more jobs. And it is a, it's a super slippery slope, and it's a really, really, really tempting thing to fall into and easy. It's really simple to find out what people want to hear because all of us want to hear the same things. Like, all of us want to hear that you're amazing, that you're a champion, that like God's gonna move mountains through you. God's going to help you defeat your giants. God's gonna help you overcome that thing in your life that you're just wondering, how am I gonna get past this, right? God is going to supply you your every need. You're wondering how you're gonna get those bills paid? Trust in God, he's gonna pay them for you. Do you want that new car? Do you want more success in life? Trust in God, he's gonna give it to you. And you know how you show your trust? Drop a little tithe into those boxes right there. You show God, I'm I'm willing to let go of this, and then he's just going to pour more onto you. That's the message so many people are hearing in churches all across America this morning. I'm telling you, you're going to be successful. I'm telling you that illness that you've been wrestling with, for so long, like God's gonna take that away and this is the one thing you gotta do to get that? Sure, I'll give it a shot because I've tried everything else and it's not working. And so this letter is going, no, no, no. We don't care about that. We didn't come to you with that. We didn't come to you trying to tickle your ears and we didn't come to you trying to get something out of you. Remember, we were there like loving siblings We were like mothering you and fathering you in a way that cared for you. We were working alongside you day and night. And we just came from a place that kicked us out. And we came here and we got kicked out and we got nothing out of it. What would cause a person to do that? Verse eight. This is what he writes. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because why you had become dear to us. They shared the gospel. That's the good news. We said that of Jesus. Uh, And way of saying this, that when you share the gospel, what you're doing is you're evangelizing. The reason that big word comes from that is because the, the word for good news was euangelion, right? That was what good news was. And so when you would evangelize someone, you were good newsing them. That, that's where that word evangelize comes out of is euangelion, and it's from that root word. So when we talk about evangelism, what we're saying is you're going speaking good news. So I want to hear from some of us, because many of us have maybe grown up in the church, maybe not in, but around the church. Maybe you've heard, maybe like this is your first time in the church, but you've had other people come and evangelize you. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to evangelize? 
What are your guys' thoughts? Share the gospel. Tell them of a better way to live. What else? If we were, if you heard like today after service, Missio, we're going to do an evangelism class. What are you expecting to learn and to hear? Techniques on what? Techniques on bringing people into salvation. Yeah, did you say this prayer just the right way? Did someone lay their hands on you when you did it? Did you check off these boxes? Yeah. What else? What else comes to mind when I, you hear me say evangelize or evangelism? Yeah. Yeah. You got to do like this. There's a gospel presentation many of us have been trained to give, right? And usually it's like following what we call the Romans road. If you've never heard of that, don't worry about it. But like we're, we're going through these steps like God is good, man has sinned, but Jesus died, and now we get to be reconciled with God. And if I don't get to share that whole thing, you know, and we've, we've had some training where they, have, they give us hand motions to do what we do. <laughs> if you don't do the hand motions, like they didn't hear the whole gospel, right? Or like we, yeah, if we don't have an altar call at the end of the service, where we call everyone up here to come and like weep and get on their knees and we lay hands on them and pray over them, but we didn't do our job sharing the gospel. Does that ring any bells for some people? Does that kind of sound like some things we've heard before? I love how this letter says, we didn't just share the gospel with you, like with our words. Because everything we just talked about was finding new ways to talk at people, right? It's finding new ways to convince people. It's finding new ways to get it into here for people, to download information for them. And he's going, we didn't just share a message with you. What does he say in verse 8? He says, not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Now, that's actually a poor translation. The original word there in the Greek is suki. I actually have a slide for that. Suki. I know it's a weird sounding word. Everyone say it. Suki. Which means, what, what does that look like in English, by the way? Like what we're... Psyche. <laughs> Not pazuki, John. This is, this is why I don't typically ask questions. But I know where we're going for lunch today, right? No, no, no. Yeah, it looks like the word psyche, right? Put a Y in there, um, which is the root word where psychology comes from, right? Did you know psychology, we often think about it as like, we're, it's a study of the mind. We think about it as like, you're going to have to like talk and listen, and they're going to give you new tips and techniques and tools on how to think right 
again, right? Or maybe sometimes we think about psychology as feelings. We think about like, oh, I, I'm really struggling with these emotions, and so I see a psychologist, and they're going to help me sort things out with my feelings, right? We either, it's one of those two things typically we think of, but actually what suki in the Greek means is soul. And psychology is meant to be a study of the soul. And a good psychologist is one that is actually thinking about your soul, which goes much deeper than just your thinking or your feeling. It's both of those two, but it's really your whole person. And so this, this word in the Greek literally translates soul, it translates to breathe or blow. So in and out, both of those things. This is the word used here when he says, we shared our lives with you, our souls, our suki, our... What do you think about when I do that? When I breathe in and I breathe out, something you're all doing right now. That's it. It's the very essence of your life, right? If you aren't doing this, you aren't alive. It's actually very closely related to you. And remember, Paul is like a devout Jew. The word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew that was used here for this is nephesh. I have that here as well. But nephesh, nephesh, which is used for soul all throughout the Old Testament. Anytime you read soul in the Old Testament, it's likely the word nephesh that word actually translates closer to throat. Like the physical part of you, right? Think about with your throat, that's the way that everything needed for life enters in. Like how do, how do you drink water? It's coming through your throat. How do you eat food, right? How do you take in air and breath and life? And so the Hebrew people would think of it that way. And that's why all throughout scripture, I say things like, my nephesh pants for you like a deer pants for water. Like I'm thirsty for you. When they would count how many people were in their camp for Israel, they would say there are this many nepheshes. It's the equivalent of us saying now, I got five mouths to feed in my house. Right? When I say mouths to feed, I'm counting actual people, human beings. And when they would say their throats, they're talking about people, living, breathing people. Everything necessary for life comes in and out through this way. It's your breathing. And so when we think about soul now, the same way that we've taken that word suki, psyche, and we've completely like deconstructed what it means in psychology, we also have done that with that word soul. We picture soul as being this disembodied part of you that will one day float off without you, right? But that's not at all how the Hebrew thinkers were talking about soul, they were very much thinking about the living, breathing beingness of a human. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You're skipping ahead, brother. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. No. You're good. Yeah. Yes. You're, you're there with me. Yeah, yeah. How did life begin in the first human being? Raymond just said it. What did God do? He, he forms this man out of the dust of the ground, like you would make someone out of clay or Plato, right? It's not alive until the very suki of God comes out from his nephesh, right? 
God giving his very being, his living, breathing beingness to this pile of dirt. And suddenly you have a living, breathing person with a soul now. That's incredible. And so now you got these guys, regular people. Remember, captain of the team of people who suck, chief of sinners. But they're willing to give their very being to a group of people they barely know. Why? Not because they were getting anything out of it. Not because they were trying to trick them into something. But because they realized that's exactly what God had done for them. Not only at the very beginning that God gives his very being, his breath of life, the spirit of God breathed into this pile of dust to make a human in his image to partner with him in caring for creation. Not only then, but remember, we messed that up. We, we said, no, no, we want our own nefesh. We're taking our lives into our own hands. We don't need your suki. We don't need your breath. We got this. And what happens? You, know, you were a pile of dirt before you had that breath. You want to walk away from it? What do you become again? And that's what scripture says. From dust you came and to dust you will return, right? That was the promise. You walk away from me, you are walking into death. It's a warning. I don't want you to do that. Stay here with me. Stay here with life, right? But that's exactly what we did. It's exactly what those humans did as our representation. It's exactly what each of us does on a daily. Like when we try to take life into our own hands, that's exactly what we're doing. It's the same spirit that was within them that's in us to not trust God today. Going, I know that I'm only able to do that because you gave that to me, but I got this. I don't need you. Like, how foolish is that? And so the same God who breathed his breath, his soul, his spirit into us at the very beginning of the story is the God who then his breath, his spirit, his life comes into another man later on in the story, right? And that that man actually clings to that. He goes, I need the spirit of God. I need this breath living and dwelling within me. I, I can't be without it. And the only time he ever was without it was when he went to death in our place. Separated from the, the breath, the soul, life force of God on that cross. He gave up his very beingness. He gave up his living, breathing soul on that cross. It didn't mean like there was this, this weird disembodied ethereal thing that was removed. And like his body, a real body with flesh and blood, and it was beaten and bruised and whipped and struck and nailed and murdered. He gave up his very soul for the sake of the world. And so this dude Saul has an encounter with him and he goes, whoa, how foolish was I running away from the life breath of God. You gave it up for me. I need that. And when he, when he got that, when that clicked for him, he was like, everybody needs this. 
And he was willing then to do the same thing, to go and give up his very soul, his very life breath, willing to die for people so that they would know this good news. Why was he willing to die? Because he knew Jesus had already done that for him. And that if he would die, the same way Jesus rose from the grave, in the same body. Do you know that? Like the tomb was empty. Jesus didn't just float away in the clouds with wings and a halo above his head. His body, physical body, got up and walked out of that tomb. And so these guys know, like, that's what's coming for us. If we trust in him, he's ushered in this new humanity, his soul given for us. Now we have his life breath, right? So we can freely give it away to others. Is anyone in here CPR certified? More than I expected. That's impressive. Uh, yeah, this is good. If I ever like faint up on stage, I'm in good hands. You got me. So, hopefully you guys don't ever have to do this to me. But you know, when you're having to give CPR to somebody, you're like breathing breath, life into them, right? What does that, what does that do to you? It's like, oh no, I, I just lost all my, I gave it all away to you. Like, there's my breath. I, like, you don't die, right? Like, you still have breath. You keep living. But what you're, at the same time, you're also giving your breath to them. And now they have breath and you still have breath. It's a weird thing. It's the same way with our soul. It's the same way with the gospel, the kingdom of God, is Jesus has enough of his spirit to go around. He has enough life to go around. He has enough of the breath of God to go around so that when you have been given life from him, he still lives eternally. And you now can go and freely give up your life, your soul for someone else. And guess what? You'll still live. You'll still have life. Even if you were to literally lay down your physical life for somebody else, the same Jesus who rose out of that tomb if you're in him, if you have his spirit in you, in the same way, you will rise again one day too. And this is something that they're going to clear up in this letter later on as we keep going through this over the next couple months, is they're starting to wonder, like, hold on, what happens for the people who, who believe this message and they've died? Like, we've seen them die. And this letter is going to help clear some of that up later. He's going, listen, here's the reality. The reality is there is coming a day when Jesus in that physical body is returning here and he's going to reign as king, all the other governments of this world are going to have to fall. Jesus's government, him as king over all things, that's the government that will last. And when he shows up, when he does that, all death, all sickness, all pain, all sorrow, all sadness, all brokenness is done away with. And you know what will last? The suki, the breath of God. And that is what will revive these mortal bodies to dwell and live again. Heaven coming down to earth and living eternally with him. I, I'm skipping ahead in Thessalonians because we're going to get to more of that. It's so good. It clears a lot of that up. But, I mean, this is, why, this is why every chapter in Thessalonians, I said this last week, ends with a reminder, Jesus is coming back. They need this hope, Right? Jesus is coming back. I could pour out my very soul for you because I know Jesus is returning. He's still alive. I will live with him. You could do the same thing for the people around you, he's saying. To the church in Thessalonica, like imagine how hard it was for them to be following after Jesus in that community. 
They just ran out the very people who gave them that message out of town. They were, they were ready to kill them or imprison them. And you're gonna still talk about Jesus here? You're like, you can't go anywhere. This is your home. You're stuck here, right? And you're still gonna talk about Jesus and not just talk about it with your words, but do what, what this letter says. Also pour out your very soul for people. That's what you're gonna have to do. Now we, we can't relate to that in the same way, can we? Like when we think about persecution, when we think about um, living and loving after Jesus in the midst of a culture that doesn't really connect with that, we aren't facing the same obstacles of being thrown into prison or killed or run out of town, right? Like they took Merry Christmas off your Starbucks cup. It's not that big a deal. It's really not. So we don't experience that. We can't connect with that, but they were facing real danger to follow after Jesus. And what we've seen even today is it's usually in cultures like that where it's really dangerous to follow Jesus that the church is actually growing exponentially. Sometimes I fear we've just gotten way too comfortable here. We've heard those false messages of the gospel that God just wants to give you comfort. He just wants to give you blessings. Hashtag blessed all day long, right? I'm about that life. That's not what we're promised. One day Jesus is returning and there will be blessings eternally. But right now, right now we're living in this tension. There's a broken world around us and yet we have good news to give them. Are you willing to pour out your very souls to give that message? What does that look like? Let's redefine that term evangelism, right? Let's get it back closer to what it really means in the scripture. We're not redefining it. We're just taking it back. Let's redefine in our own minds what it means to share good news with people. Not just going and talking at people. This is what we've done in our Western culture is we've turned ourselves, the human person, into these brains on a stick. And if we can just get them to to intellectually assent to what I'm saying, to acknowledge it up here in their head, then we've, we've won, right? Or we now, like what our culture is moving into is like, no, no, forget that, that's wrong. It's just all about feelings. It's all about your gut. Like, I, that sounds true, but you know what? I, it doesn't sound good, so I don't like it. I'm gonna say it's not true. <laughs> I got my truth, right? And this dichotomy of the human person, it doesn't work. We're whole beings. How are we living in such a way where our whole being is proclaiming good news to people? Both with our words, so the mind is hearing it, with our actions, with our very soul, with our, our life breath. This is what we talk about often with Missio is our head, our heart, and our hands. The whole person, your thinking, your feelings, your living. All of this belongs to Jesus. All of it was created by him and all of it is being redeemed and restored by him. This, I think, is what the Hebrew people meant when they talked about the soul. Your whole person given to Jesus and you know what you will get back? Life. If you give your life, you will gain it back. I think that's somewhere in here too, right? And so the Hebrew people, they had this saying they would repeat over and over again. 
It was a prayer called the Shema. It was something God actually gave to them, and they would repeat it over and over to remind themselves what life is about. And it would go like this. It would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Right? Jesus actually adds mind later because he's in a Greek world when he steps on the scene and he knows that that's what they're in. They're in the thoughts. But he's, what he's doing, the same thing Yahweh was doing in the Old Testament, he's doing in the New Testament. They're bringing together your whole person. Love the Lord your God with your whole beingness, everything you have. And when you do that, you enter into a partnership with him and loving and caring for the rest of creation, the world around you. That's what the world needs to see the church is about. Not about trying to get something out of them. Not about trying to live in comfort. Not about oppressing other people. We've seen, unfortunately, the church do that way too often in our culture. By God's grace, by his spirit's power, let's pray that we would actually be a church that would enter into partnership with God for the blessing of all creation. Amen?